Welcome to season two of My Favourite Item, unravelling Brisbane's history piece by piece. Brought to you by Brisbane's Living Heritage Network, a membership-based organisation promoting more than 80 heritage places and museums dedicated to sharing Brisbane's story. In each episode, join me as we step inside a different Brisbane-based cultural heritage collection to learn more about this city's rich and unique history. If you're a first-time listener, you may want to start back at season one, but each episode tells its own special story. joined by Trooper Nigel Cox, who's from the Army Museum South Queensland, which you can find in the Victorian Barracks on Petrie Terrace. Welcome to the episode, Nigel. Thank you, Chris. Nigel's favourite item tells a story of a fierce rivalry that we as Queenslanders are familiar with. It's a combination of a story about mateship and our military history. You might be sitting there going, well, what is it? We're going to hold you in suspense for a while longer before we actually identify Nigel's favourite item and start at the beginning. To set the scene, I'm going to take you back to World War II. Nigel, what can you tell us about the Bougainville campaign? The Bougainville campaign was actually part of their Elkton plan, which ended up having a three development stages before being implemented as codename Operation Cartwheel. Multi-step operation was designed to neutralise the Japanese in the southwest Pacific. General MacArthur was given the overall command with Admiral Horsley operating beneath him. The pair worked tirelessly finalising the plan after their first introduction to each other occurring actually here in Brisbane and the plan was issued on the 26th of April 1943. MacArthur was responsible for New Guinea whilst Halsey's forces responsibility lay with the Solomon Islands. The two-pronged advance was made up of five major operations. Operation Cartwheel started on the 30th of June 43 and concluded in the spring of 44. With this, the Americans landed on Bougainville on the 1st of November 43 under the codename Operation Cherry Blossom. Halsey's force concentrated on the largely undefended area of the west coast of Bougainville. The belief was that the building of airstrips in the area that the Allies would quickly dominate the surrounding area by air superiority. After expanding their beachhead, the handover to the Australians commenced. Under the command of Lieutenant General Savage, the Australians were tasked with clearing the remaining Japanese forces from Bougainville. Over the next 11 months, the Australians lost 516 men with another 1,572 wounded on Bougainville. The Japanese forces, on the other hand, lost 8,500 killed and just under 10,000 due to illness. With the dropping of the two atomic bombs on Japan, fighting patrols for the Australians were cancelled. The Japanese surrendered on the 15th of August, with the official surrendering occurring in Tokyo Bay on 2nd of September. Waiting for the Japanese on or about to surrender, the Japanese forces on Bougainville didn't surrender until the 8th of September. There was actually two Victoria Crosses awarded to Australians whilst on Bougainville. The first was the Reg Ratty, and he was awarded his Victoria Cross for his actions on Buon Road on the 22nd of March. His battalion was ordered to capture the stronghold, and with the likelihood that his section was to incur many casualties, Ratty, armed with a Bren gun, single-handedly attacked three Japanese bunkers, destroying the first bunker with a grenade. He then returned to his section under heavy fire to obtain more grenades so he could neutralise the remaining bunkers. After a short spell, his patrol was once again under further machine gun fire. Single-handedly, Ratty once again went forward, killing one enemy, injuring another and forcing the remaining to re retreat. The final Victoria Cross recipient was 
Frank Partridge, and he became Australia's youngest recipient of the Victoria Cross and the last of the war on the 24th of July. His patrol came under heavy attack from a Japanese post near Ratsua. Already wounded himself, Partridge took the Bren gun off the gunner that was killed and moved forward to silence the first of two bunkers. Rushing forward with a grenade and a knife, he silenced the machine gun with a grenade before killing the remaining living occupant with his knife. His attempt to silence the second bunker halted due to the loss of blood, though he remained with his platoon until they withdrew. After the war, Frank Partridge actually went on to become one of Australia's greatest quiz show champions. Now we come to the item itself. Nigel, what are we looking at here? We have in front of us a trophy that was made for an interstate series played by the soldiers on Bougainville. The trophy itself is actually a 120mm Japanese naval shell. The trophy itself is a quality piece of trench art. Trench art, for those who don't know, is any piece of decorative art made by anyone, usually defence personnel, during times of war. Made from materials available to them, it offers a glimpse into that particular period of time and place. This type of ammunition was used in the Type 10 gun by the Japanese Navy. It was a dual-purpose anti-aircraft gun and coastal defence gun for the Japanese. It was the secondary armament for the larger vessels and the primary gun on smaller vessels. The Type 10 was made in large numbers in 44, with huge quantities of ammunition being captured during and after the war. The gun itself weighed 8.5 tonnes, with the shell weighing 20.6 kilograms. With a semi-automatic action, the gun fired 10 to 12 rounds per minute, with an effective horizontal range of 16 kilometres and a vertical range of 8,500 metres. This particular shawl and cartridge was made at the Kokura Arsenal in 1933 and is most likely a high explosive shawl. On the trophy there's a team list. Now I know that there's always a lot of arguments surrounding who's considered a Queenslander, who's considered a New South Welshman. Um, how did the army actually decide this question? Much like the current ruling on eligibility, it's not where you were born but where you played your first row game. So likewise on Bougainville, it's not where you were born, but it's believed where you enlisted, and that's the state that you played for. So who were these players? Can you tell us a little bit about the ones who you've been able to research and find more about? Sure. People who have viewed the games on Bougainville believed it was played to a better standard than that of the interstate series that was played in Australia during the year, for which New South Wales were convincing winners. The reason why the game on Bougainville was played to such a high standard was because the majority of the players had played grade football back in Brisbane, Sydney or the town or city that they had lived in prior to enlisting. For instance, for Queensland, the captain was the Rockhampton fullback Jack Barnes. Colin King represented Queensland schoolboys in rugby union from Ipswich Grammar before switching to league. He later played one game for Ipswich in the Bulimba Cup, a triangular competition which included Brisbane and Toowoomba. Artie Bradshaw was a well-known West player who represented Brisbane and Hoare also played for the Mudden Bloods. Halfback Robert Williamson played for Valleys prior to the war and came back to help Valleys claim their 14th Premiership in 46. Tom Dixon played seven matches for Queensland between 35 and 39. Eric Bowe made a Queensland side from Rockhampton in 1940 and played his final game for Queensland in 48. And finally, Queensland hooker Sergeant Kelly Brennan started his career with Ipswich Brothers in 1933 before switching to Rialto and then West End and went on to represent Queensland 10 times between 46 and 48. With New South Wales, they potentially had a better team. Starting with Harry Taylor, he not only played in both games, but captained the second game as well. A North Sydney player, along with Herb Jew, Taylor was rated by Frank Hyde, legendary North Sydney player and commentator, as one of the best lock forwards of his era. Taylor was also the centre of controversy before the 1943 Grand Final between North Sydney and Newtown. 
it became known as the infamous no-show grand final. They believed Harry Taylor was going to go AWOL up in New Guinea and come back to Sydney and play in the grand final. Rumours abound that he was arrested outside the SCG by the military police were later proven false. He was actually still serving in New Guinea. But such was the hysteria of rugby league and of the soldiers who had played great football and still wanting to play stirred up a lot of emotion and was a great story for the time. Herb Jew, the North Sydney player that I mentioned before, was awarded the military medal while as a telephonist in support of A Company 31st 51st Battalion's advance and the two subsequent attacks on Downs Ridge. He supported Captain Blackaby in moving forward of the attacking forces sometimes with in as little as 70 metres from the enemy. His position was exposed to enemy fire and later in the day helped evacuate wounded whilst under fire. On a further two occasions, he was forward of the main attacking forces helping to coordinate the attacks. His citation reads at the end, and I quote, at all times he displayed outstanding coolness and determination in maintaining communications under fire. From western suburbs in Sydney, there was Tom Briggs and Norm Parkinson. Hooker Don Sinclair, who played for Eastern Suburbs in Canterbury, didn't serve but was in Bougainville at the time, so there's a good chance it is the same person. Doug McRitchie was the vice captain of New South Wales in Bougainville. He later captained St George and went on the 48 Kangaroo Tour of Great Britain and France. Credited with making the initial break in the third test against Great Britain, which resulted in the famous Ashes winning try to ring up Ron Roberts. Horrock Marjorie Bay, captain of the first game, played with Waratah and Western Newcastle. Ron Miller played reserve grade for St George in 46. Vincent Love played rugby union for Randwick. A C. Smith had played in the Mar Cup. Jack Hobson played for Young in the Mar Cup as well. And the Mar Cup, by the way, was contested by 12 teams of the Southwest Slopes and Northern River Arena areas of New South Wales between 1920 and 71. Doug O'Halloran played rugby union for Randwick and it's possible that R. Piper played rugby union for Randwick in 43 and that R. Hedge played for North Sydney. Colin King, in an interview with Bernie Cranberg, believes Williamson and Jude were the best over both games and Clancy Wincott believes her grandfather won the best and fairest award for the second game on Bougainville. Being a country girl, I know I love a good rugby league match and State of Origin is always the pinnacle. What can you tell us about the match itself? The match itself was played in front of 10,000 soldiers, so that's a third of the Australian force that was on Bougainville at the time. At the conclusion of hostilities, there were still 23,000 Japanese on the island, just over a third of the original force. They had to be shipped home. So they went home first, followed by the Americans, and the Australians had to wait until the ships came back so they could be transported home. Out of this, a huge sporting carnival was created. Rugby league, cricket, Aussie rules, there were shows and stage shows to entertain the troops. There was even a professional Bougainville Rugby League Association form, and it was formed by Brigadier General LG Bin and still has affiliation with the Brisbane Rugby League and Queensland Rugby League today. Under his tutelage was Warren Sir Ron Connor. He came up with the idea and the games were actually played on a former US medical hospital ground and evacuation centre, and it was renamed Medco Ground. Major Titley gave the go-ahead for the game and arranged for the 31st, 51st Battalion Band to provide entertainment. Commander of the 3rd Infantry Division, Major General William Richford, commissioned a trophy that was made in the Army workshops and selectors from each state started choosing their team. And out of this, at 1400, that's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, on the 16th of September 1945, the kickoff began between Queensland and New South Wales. The Queensland side, naturally wearing maroon jerseys and captained by Rockhampton fullback Jack Barnes, ran on to Medco ground and lined up against New South Wales. 
New South Wales won the toss and Bobby Williamson for halfback for Queensland that went on to play halfback for Valleys and was a premiership winning Valleys for in the 1946 BRL competition kicked off for the Banana Landers. Connor wrote, from the word go, the Queensland forwards were on the board and stayed there until the final whistle. At the start of the match, winger Jim Christopher kicked two penalty goals and scored a try just before half-time to give Queensland a 7-0 lead at the break. Midway through the second half, New South Wales fullback Norm Parkinson kicked two goals to move the Blues within three points and then kicked a beautiful field goal from 40 yards out, remembering back then field goals were worth two points. The kick was remarkable as it hit the crossbar and went over. Queensland at the break, 7, New South Wales 6. New South Wales then scored a try that Connor described as the most brilliant try of the match, with centre Doug McRitchie on the end of a backline movement in which all the men from the halfback to the winger handled. Parkinson missed the conversion, leaving New South Wales ahead 9-7 with 5 minutes to play. Queensland went on the attack when Christopher missed a goal with just 2 minutes left. It seemed the Blues were home, but it was so often the case, in football, the final scene was still to be written. Queensland forwards carried the play forward to the New South Wales try line and fierce rucking resulting in Thompson, who was acting as dummy half, gathered the ball and passed to Hector Bradshaw, who smashed his way forward through the New South Wales defence and was tackled by the fullback and dragged him over the line to score with 30 seconds remaining before full time. As the bell rang, the spectators swarmed onto the field and Hector was carried shoulder high into the dressing room. Now, this was a pretty professional match. It even had radio coverage, is that correct? It did. Throughout the islands, once again for entertainment, it was called the Amenities, Canteen and Educational Services. And they were responsible for providing entertainment through radio, cinema, educational services for the soldiers, and even philanthropic organisations got involved to help entertain and provide welfare for the soldiers. Out of this, the radio station that was located in Torakina on Bougainville was 9AC. Lieutenant Tom Peranzi did the commentary for the game and he was actually instrumental or was a very well-known North, Northern Suburbs player in the Brisbane Rugby League back in the 1930s as well. Frank Bauer, which is a well-known Brisbane referee, came up to Bougainville and refereed both matches as well. So you've covered the first game, which I'm happy to report Queensland won in its traditional way, right on the final whistle. What happened in the second game? The second game was pretty much like the first, but Queensland won a little bit more convincingly, this time 20 points to 13. How did the Army Museum of South Queensland actually come to have this trophy in its collection? Actually, the trophy was presented to the Queensland Rugby League by the Army at halftime during a BRL match in 1946. It was later donated back to the Museum of Victoria Barracks in 1998 after being discovered in a storage shed on base. Why is this trophy so special to you and the museum? The trophy is important to me and the museum due to the importance of rugby league in Queensland and New South Wales. The importance of the game can trace its heritage back to the events of the First World War. Many sporting codes in Australia debated whether or not they should disband the duration of the war in support of the war effort. With the disbandment of Rugby Union, a decision was made in July 1916 that Rugby Union was to play a series of non-competitive matches between clubs and schools. The decision gave Rugby League a boost that only grew in the pursuing years. Senior Rugby Union didn't resume until the late 20s, with the GPS schools playing Rugby League until 1928. With the outbreak of war in 1939, the Brisbane Rugby League believed the organised sport is a necessity promotion and maintenance of national fitness. Rugby league was not considered an official sport for the Australian Armed Services, unlike rugby union, Aussie rules or cricket. 
was only through the strong lobbying by former Prime Minister Arthur Fadden, inaugural president of the North Queensland Rugby League, and James Larkin, former president of the Queensland Rugby League, then state member for Rockhampton, that rugby league was adopted by the military. Matches between units became regular events, and even some interstate matches between Queensland and New South Wales battalions. All these games eventually led to the interstate game being played on Bougainville in September and October of 45. It's considered the first state of origin, though it was not known that at the time, but a lot of the players and soldiers at the time were getting a little bit frustrated of seeing their friends, colleagues or themselves representing units from another state, as in they came from Queensland, enlisted in Queensland, but were posted to a New South Wales battalion and vice versa. They wanted to play the state from where they were from. Thank you for listening to My Favourite Item, Unravelling Brisbane's History Piece by Piece. We hope you've enjoyed discovering more about Nigel's favourite item. If you want to learn more or see the cup itself, I know that at the moment every museum around the world is closed, but when you actually reopen, Nigel, can you tell our listeners how they can actually visit this museum? So if you go on the website, it's called Army Museum South Queensland, make the bookings through there. Our tours are held most Wednesdays there you'll come in tour around our current exhibition sit down for a powerpoint presentation then have morning tea before walking around the barracks and see what famous servicemen had served here over the years since its opening in 1860. Like this podcast or do you know something more about the item? Maybe you can help Nigel learn more about that second game, you were at Lang Park when that cup was presented back to the army or you were told about the match through your family. Think about leaving a comment, subscribing or sharing this podcast on your social media platforms. What will be the next favourite item? Tune in to the next episode to find out. Nigel, you wanted to thank a few people that helped you do your research for this podcast. Yes, thank you, Kirsten. I'd like to thank a number of people that I've spoken to over the last couple of years and more recently the last two months. I'd like to thank Greg Shannon, QRL History Committee, Terry Williams from the New South Wales Rugby League, journalist Mike Coleman, Bernie Pramberg, David Milton, Steve Haddon, and former Victoria Barracks Museum Manager Major John Wright for their previous research and support and the granddaughter of Queensland halfback, Robert Williamson, Clancy Wincott. Speaking to Clancy just last week, the family still retains the original program from Bougainville, a single sheet program which was actually printed on the reverse side of a leaflet that was produced to warn the local population on what to do in case of a Japanese invasion. I hope you enjoyed the topic today. All the best, speak soon, and don't forget to say hi.